the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I get. I mean, I guess there are some people who would be like distancing themselves immensely from a person like this if something like this happened, because they just wouldn't be able to handle it, or they would think that they're a monster. And it's not so black and white. When something bad happens like this, like what what do you do? What's your initial response? Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. And today, you guys, we record in Hollywood. We're in LA. Today is the first day that it has rained. It kind of feels like fall. Yeah. A little bit. It's been so fucking hot. Yeah. yeah. And we're feeling a little bit festive. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. We're finally feeling like... A little gothy because it's been so <laughs> freaking sunny for the last six months straight. Really, that's, is, sun is your that's your nemesis. That sun, the sun is my nemesis. The sun actually is everyone's nemesis. You should not go out in the sun. I I like being outside in the shade. Me too. I like sun adjacent. Yeah, me too. What day is it, Billy? It is. Wait, it is Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. That's mm-hmm. right. I hope you guys are listening to us on your commute back home. Because this is going to be a good episode. Yes. But what day is it? In the spirit of that, it is Blackout Wednesday. It is the biggest party day of the year. Yes. It is the biggest club day of the year. Mm -hmm. It's when everybody has gone back. Everybody is back home. With their high school friends. With their high school friends. They've been to college. They think they've seen things, man. Seen it all. They've seen it all. Then they go back. 23. You know, you know everything. Yep. But it is also National Electric Guitar Day. And it's National Pie in the Face Day. Boring. What does that even mean? Boring. Pie in the face? Yeah. What are we, five? What are we, really? (laughs) What are we, we in a comedy sketch? Or clowns? I'm not a clown. Okay, fine. Well, you know, it's it really is National Blackout Day. It is. I hope everybody is partying their asses off. Make good decisions, though, and don't drive Be safe. Have a buddy. Don't walk home yourself. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, well... That's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety. Because Epstein didn't kill himself. For the most part, true crime lovers are generally comforted by the idea of the justice system. After a trial, a murderer gets put in a box, in a category. We get a black and white answer. The perpetrator is guilty or innocent. A sentence is handed down. Order is restored from chaos. Right? Well, not always. We're going back to October 12th of 2012. The top song on the charts was One More Night by Maroon 5, and the movies in the theaters were Trade of Innocence, Sinister, and Smiley. And our setting today is Dayton, Ohio, which is the hometown of Courtney, our first degree. Dayton, Ohio, I think it gets a really bad rap. For a long time after the economy crashed, it was like number two in the nation for the worst economy. I'm pretty sure that we single-handedly 
like rebuilt our economy on microbreweries and food trucks. The Oregon district is kind of like the heart of the city of Dayton. So it's, it's a really close-knit group of people. There are a bunch of little boutiques and shops and things, and everybody works really hard to just kind of support each other. So that's kind of where this starts. On the evening of October 10th, 2012, at around 12.30 in the morning, a woman watching television in her home on Quitman Street in Dayton, Ohio, heard screams for help coming from the abandoned house next door. I could hear a gentleman screaming. Um, he kept screaming, somebody help me, call the police. He's killing me. And he screamed it over and over and over again. Um, then I dialed 911. The man kept screaming. But his cries grew quieter and quieter. And after about five minutes, the cries stopped altogether. Police came out and arrived at the abandoned home within minutes. And the first police officer to arrive saw a man who appeared to be in his 20s with a knife in his hand, kneeling over a man on the ground. And the man on the ground wasn't moving. The officer identified himself and ordered the man with the knife to drop his weapon. And the man with the knife took off running, and he was quick. He cleared one fence and was in the middle of hopping over another. Police drew their guns and ordered him to stop and get on the ground. And they had to yell at him several times before he complied. And the man put his hands in the air and said, Okay, I give up. And then he started yelling, this is a crime of passion. This is a crime of passion. When police arrived on Quitman, they found Gray still on scene. When they got there, they found um, one male standing on top of another. Uh, he attempted to flee. Uh, he climbed over a fence and he was uh, apprehended a short distance later. Police say Gray dropped a knife, which officers found near the scene. The man with the knife who ran was identified as 27-year-old Curtis Gray. On the scene, police emptied his pockets, and in one of them, they found what appeared to be a hospital bracelet. The name on the bracelet was Daniel Moody. It would be revealed that this bracelet belonged to the man who lay dead on the ground. Additional officers arrived at the scene, and over and over and over again, Curtis Gray continued to scream, Guys, this is a crime of passion. We're not sure why. Uh, we haven't determined any motive, and he's not talking to us. And once Curtis was in the custody of the police, the police approached the man who was lying on the ground. He was on his right side with his left side facing up. His arm was laying across his head as if he was in a defensive position and sort of trying to protect his face. And his shirt was raised, exposing his abdomen. His abdomen and torso area had been essentially eviscerated. His bowels were hanging out. Um, and on his lower right side, there were open cavities, as well as on his lower left side. There was a large wound between his ribs where they could see right into his chest cavity. So the police sealed the scene, and this is what they found. They found Curtis's glasses near a fence on the other side of the home from where Daniel was lying. The glasses were bent. And other than his glasses, there wasn't much additional tangible evidence or clues at the scene other than what could be observed on the victim. And when the police brought Curtis back to the police department, they observed his clothing and they saw that he had mud on the knees of his pants, but none on the back of his clothing. He had blood all over his hands and on the sleeves of his jacket, but nowhere else except for a small amount on the back of his pants and on the inside hem of the back of his t-shirt. 
and he had no physical injuries or wounds. The bizarre killing presented a lot of questions. Who are these men? How are they connected? How and why did this happen? And we're going to learn on this episode that these answers aren't always clear. Tonight, a waiter at a restaurant I bet you've been to in the Oregon district, now locked up, accused of stabbing a homeless man to death. Right now, police are still trying to piece together what exactly happened. Police say Curtis Gray stabbed 51-year-old Daniel Moody several times last night near a vacant home on Quitman Street. They are still investigating what sparked the deadly stabbing. Those who know the suspect well told me off-camera Gray has been working at Ty 9 for at least five years. They tell me they are shocked to find out he's been accused of such an awful crime. And our first degree, Courtney, was one of those who was shocked when she heard the news. But it was my friend, Tina. And she had told me, she's like, Curtis is in trouble. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I just talked to him. She was like, no, he's been arrested for murder. She was like, Courtney, are you there? Are you there? It took me a minute to actually respond. I I couldn't believe it. Like, this is a man that I'd literally seen take a fly in his apartment, catch it in the cup, walk it downstairs, and, like, let it outside. So when you say somebody, like, would never hurt a fly, this is the kind of person that, like, as far as I knew, was just like that. He was a hippy-dippy dude. Like, he's kind and caring to everyone. And I was just thinking, like, was it a mugging gone wrong? Like, was this self-defense? There must have been an accident. Was this a car accident or something? Idea where she was going with it. And then she told me, no, it's this homeless man. He was stabbed. And Curtis says that it was self-defense. Let's start with Curtis Gray. Curtis attended Chaminade Julian High School, and he spent time in the army before returning to Dayton and working at Ty 9 in Dayton's Oregon district. So who is Curtis? And more importantly, is this something his friends believed he could be capable of? Courtney and Curtis were very, very close. We met in high school. I was at a Denny's the night that I met Curtis. He was a friend of a friend. So he showed up. He's driving this old, probably like early 90s maroon Toyota Camry. He had this long, flowing, probably like shoulder length brown hair. And he walks into Denny's. He's wearing like this this leathery suede jacket and this goofy short sleeve button-down, like, paisley print green shirt. It was horrendous looking. And it was, a, I think it was a couple months later that, for some reason, he asked me out. Yeah, we dated. It was very brief. So he was, like, kind of my first boyfriend after I sort of, like, realized myself as an adult. We were definitely not meant to date. We were definitely meant to be friends. So we dated for, like, two months. And he actually broke up with me right before prom. And I was like, this bastard. And then we didn't talk for years after that. He finally reached out to me again. I was living in Virginia. I'd actually just had surgery from a military injury. I was in the Navy and he had messaged me and was like, hey, I just wanted to to say hi, like, sorry about how things were like this. So he broke up with me like 2005, like five years later. And I'm just like, dude, I'm over it. So we just started chatting again. We, We were definitely talking like at least once a week up until all of this happened. All right. So what about Daniel Moody? 
Daniel Moody was homeless at the time of his death and had a history of arrests and felony convictions for breaking and entering, forgery, and drunk possession dating back to 1999. And some locals describe Daniel as sort of aggressive and as a panhandler, who was frequently in the area of the restaurant Thai Nine where Curtis worked. So Daniel Moody, he had a reputation for being mentally unstable. Now, I'm a nurse, but I'm not a doctor, and I don't know his history, so I, uh, it's hard for me to speculate as to what exactly was going on with him, but there were some reports that he'd been schizophrenic or bipolar, and he had a rap sheet a mile long. Starting from, like, the late 90s, he had 90-some arrests. If I remember correctly, I think there was even, like, one violent assault of, like, a pregnant woman who wouldn't give him money. He was particularly infamous. Like, just about any business in the Oregon District could tell you who this guy was. Um, My little brother even told me that he'd met this guy a couple of times. Um, He'd come into the store where my little brother worked. He would be trying to get money, or he would be trying to, like, solicit sex from people. He was saying that he was... He was basically trying to, like, prostitute himself, from what I understood. He just had a lot of demons. None of us who were on Curtis's side were ever, like, against this man. I felt the system really had failed this man. He kept getting arrested, put in jail, and then they'd turn him back out without any treatment, sort of help at all. He had definitely substance abuse issues and clearly was coming from a place of mental illness. Like, I want to make that abundantly clear. This man was not some sort of, like, evil person who was just, like, who came unhinged. He, he was sick. Curtis was claiming that this was a self-defense situation. And as soon as he was in custody, he and Courtney were on the phone. And she thought that this was self-defense as well. But the question is, how exactly did Curtis and Daniel cross paths that night? And this is what Curtis said happened via Courtney. There's only so much detail that you can really go into when you're on jail or prison phones. I mean, your calls are being monitored. The information that he gave me was that he had gotten off work at Pi 9. They had this thing at Pi 9 where they would, like, you get a drink at the end of your shift if you wanted. And so a lot of people, like, when they were done with their shift, they'd chill at the bar. Like, the restaurant was closing down, and everyone would hang out. They'd have a drink or two. To the best of my knowledge, that was, like, the extent. Curtis said that after having multiple drinks at multiple bars, he was walking home from work in the Oregon District when Daniel, who Curtis knew as a local panhandler, asked him for money. After telling him no, he started following Curtis home. And so he was walking down this street. At some point, he noticed that there was this man behind him, but he noticed that he was, like, getting closer. He was kind of worried because he'd been mugged before, and he just got off a shift at a restaurant. So, you know, as a server, you've got a bunch of cash tips in your pocket. You're you're worried about somebody trying to, to get you for it. He kept walking. He was trying to ignore this guy. He even turned into, like, the neighborhood nearby to kind of lose him. Curtis then said that after several more blocks, he heard Daniel Moody behind him, breathing heavy and heard shoes scraping on the sidewalk. He looked back and saw that Daniel Moody was running at him and within arm's reach. Curtis then tried to run from him. 
So the neighborhood that he turned into doesn't have like the best lighting. There aren't a great many street lights back there. A lot of older homes. Um, some of them were kind of run down. Um, and he ended up near an abandoned home when he said that this guy attacked him. And then he fell to the ground and his I remember distinctly he was just very upset that his glasses had been knocked off of his face and how it like really disoriented him. From what I understood, Curtis was like legally blind or something when it came to his vision and like driving at night and stuff. So like I would have been disoriented having just had my glasses knocked off my face. Then I can only imagine how he actually felt. Curtis told the police that he took only two or three steps before Daniel pushed him to the ground. And he fell on the grass on his hands and knees and said his glasses fell off. Curtis got up and he ran toward an abandoned house. And when he neared the house, Daniel pushed him again and Curtis's back hit the side of the house. Then Daniel forced Curtis to the ground. Then Curtis said it was he who actually yelled, help, stop, he's trying to kill me. And Curtis claimed that he believed that his life was in danger. And he believed that Daniel was trying to kill him because he had him on the ground, on top of him, against the wall with his hands on him. And this was all coupled with the fact that Daniel had followed him home the entire way. And Curtis admitted that he didn't see a weapon in Daniel's possession. He said that he did hear a rumor that Daniel carried a box cutter with him. And when the police asked why Curtis had a knife on him, he explained that he started carrying one at all times after being mugged a year before. And that's when he pulled out the knife and started stabbing. He stabbed Daniel in the leg, but he said Daniel would not stop. Then Daniel attempted to grab Curtis's wrist and throat. He was knocked down, and he said that, like, the guy tackled him again, and he said, I'm going to get something tonight. What Curtis took that to mean was that this man was trying to sexually assault him. Curtis grabbed the knife, and what he says is that after that, he just started stabbing until the man stopped moving. Curtis claimed to immediately stop stabbing once Daniel stopped. He said that he then had a lapse of memory. He said he was unable to remember fleeing from the police, climbing over the fence, and also refusing the officer's commands, which were several, to show his hands and to get on the ground. He also denied taking Daniel's hospital wristband and putting it in his pocket. He said he had no idea how it ended up in his pocket. So Curtis is adamant that this was a case of self-defense, as we said. But law enforcement was looking at this completely differently. Why were they looking at this differently? Well, Daniel had more than 100 stab wounds. 100 stab wounds. Daniel had at least 110 stab wounds. This number was referred to as a conservative estimate. There were overlapping stab wounds where the knife pierced at the body more than once in a single spot. And these were counted as a single wound. So the true number may not be known. But there were 42 stab wounds to his chest and abdomen, five of which pierced his lung and four that pierced his heart. 19 stab wounds to his head and face, four of which penetrated his skull. And one that cut through his cheek and neck and pierced his voice box and larynx. Eight stab wounds to his stomach, 17 stab wounds to his left leg and two stab wounds to his back. The four stab wounds to Moody's heart were fatal. 
Daniel Moody also had 17 stab wounds to his left forearm and 15 wounds to his right hand and wrist, which were consistent with defensive wounds. I mean, like the number of stab wounds when that came out, like that took me back a little bit. It really did. Like from an objective point of view, if you knew nothing else about it, like, of course, that sounds terrible. Yes, it sounds like purposeful murder. But then if you like study any sort of psychology, especially when it comes to people who have committed some sort of killing, like overkill isn't always a sign of somebody who was intentionally trying to take the life of somebody. Sometimes it's like an emotional, uncalculated, unintentional reaction being threatened because human beings at our essence are animals. If you strip us down to like where we're backed into a corner, nobody can truly say exactly how they're going to respond. So what was the police's theory? I I have no idea what the police ended up saying. This is a homeless hate crime or there were some people because Curtis is white passing. He's not white entirely. It was a, a, a hate crime based off of race because the gentleman who passed away was black and Curtis looked white. That's the only thing I could think was that like he just like people were just saying that he snapped and just killed some innocent homeless man. Like the way that the news had made it seem initially, they made it sound like he just walked up on some homeless man who was sleeping behind in an abandoned house and just started stabbing him until he died. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. So what was this? A hate crime or self-defense? Here's what we know. In the days that followed Daniel's killing, a witness came forward and said that she saw Daniel following Curtis the night that this happened before the murder had occurred. This presents evidence that at least initially, Daniel was pursuing him on foot, but to what degree and what happened next? The police examined Curtis's clothes His jacket had white stains on the back of it, and they believe the white stains were likely from the peeling paint on the abandoned house where this all took place. And this is consistent with what Curtis had said about Daniel pushing him against the house prior to the stabbing. Then there's Curtis's bent glasses that were found at the scene. They were found on the other side of the home, right next to the side of the house, which corroborates Curtis's story as well. So how does one react when a close friend is implicated in something like this. I get. I mean, I guess there are some people who would be like distancing themselves immensely from a person like this if something like this happened because they just wouldn't be able to handle it or they would think that they're a monster. And it's not so black and white. 
when something bad happens like this, like what what do you do? What's your initial response? And my response was to defend him. Yes, the human being that I know, I'm not saying that he didn't do it. I'm not saying that he wouldn't do it because human beings are capable of all sorts of crazy things when they're backed into a corner. And that's something that like, I, it's a resounding statement at the end of like all of your episodes is like, I guess it just goes to show that you don't really know somebody or anyone is capable of anything. So while certain portions of Curtis's story did seem to be supported by the evidence, there were also some real issues with other parts of his story. First, there's his behavior at the scene. When the police arrived at the scene, he ran. Then there's what he said. He screamed over and over again, this was a crime of passion. This was a crime of passion. And then there's what he didn't say. When Curtis was apprehended, he never once mentioned being attacked by Daniel or mentioned self-defense. But as we know, he just kept on saying over and over again, this is a crime of passion. And then there's Curtis's clothing. There was mud on the knees of his pants, suggesting that he was on his knees for at least a portion of the attack, which goes against what he's saying, that he was on his back as Moody was attacking him. But how is this possible when Daniel had more than 110 stab wounds, including his arms, hands, stomach, abdomen, and chest, and face, and head, all while Daniel leaned over him? There was also the fact that blood was only found on Curtis's hands and sleeves, But shouldn't there be blood all over him if the story happened the way it did? Because if he was stabbing Moody as Moody's over him, it should be dripping onto him. Absolutely. So that's kind of an inconsistency with his story compared against the evidence. There also wasn't any mud or dirt found on the back of Curtis's pants or jacket or shirt, which you would expect if he were laying on his back during the attack, as he said. And remember Daniel Moody's hospital wristband that was in Curtis's pocket? Well, he started claiming that it must have been planted on him. And then there was also the fact that Curtis said that he stopped stabbing Daniel as soon as Daniel stopped attacking him. But the police had a hard time believing that because it took 110 stab wounds to incapacitate him. So the police met with the medical examiner who conducted the autopsy. And the doctor concluded that, quote, typically a person stabbed in the heart will become weaker and weaker until the person passes out and eventually dies. And this was Dr. Lehman. Dr. Lehman's opinion that once Daniel's heart was stabbed, he had about 30 seconds of conscious activity. And then there's the matter of the defensive wounds. If Daniel were pinning Curtis down and putting his hands on Curtis's throat the entire time, as Curtis claimed... It was very difficult to explain why Daniel had defensive wounds on his forearms and hands. Daniel's left forearm, hands, and wrists had multiple stab wounds, and the police believed that this was evidence that Curtis did not stab Daniel from below as he claimed. They believed that Curtis was kneeling beside him while he stabbed Daniel, who was facing up and laying on the ground. These were also the positions of the men when the police approached them at the scene before Curtis ran. So let's ask Courtney about what her theory is and about how all of this played out because she knows Curtis best. Curtis did not set out that night to go kill somebody. Curtis never wanted to kill somebody. He was never that type of person. 
he wasn't like this super gung-ho, macho, supermoto military dude who joined the army so that he could go kill, you know, terrorists or whatever, the way some people talk when they go in. Like, I'm in it for the fight. He wasn't like that. He felt threatened. It may have brought back uh, memories of trauma that he had experienced as a child. It may have triggered a fight uh, response in him, which I can also relate to having been trained in the military. And it, it just ended up being like the worst thing that could possibly happen that night. But what to make of the sheer number of stab wounds that Daniel suffered? Courtney had some very unique insight on this. Like, I remember my mom asking me, because my mom knew Curtis and I dated him, obviously. My mom saw Curtis quite regularly when I came home. He was a close friend. She had asked me at one point, she goes, Courtney, what do you, she's like, I'm having a really hard time with this. She goes, what would you think about all of this? Like, what do you think? Like, I just, I'm having a hard time reconciling. And I was like, well, if it were me, I told her, I was like, if I were there, I can tell you that the training that I have been given from the military was done in such a way that it tried to program me to not like run away from something like that. Your brain is just programmed to neutralize the threat. And it sounds so sanitary when you say it like that, but that's that's how you have to see it in a moment like that for self-preservation purposes. If I had been Curtis in those, like in his shoes that night, I don't think Moody would be walking away from me. I don't think he'd be dead. But I would do everything in my, like, physical power to incapacitate him so he couldn't hurt me anymore. Either way, it was the physical evidence that challenged Curtis's account the loudest. Curtis was indicted on October 18th, 2013 for murder, purposefully causing death as a proximate result of committing felonious assault with a deadly weapon. I mean, we're going to go right into this jury now. The jury is going to see, okay, this kind of makes sense. This guy was following him. They have witnesses to the guy following him. He turns around, he gets attacked, and he stabs him. But the 110 stab wounds... The overkill. ...is one thing. And then the lack of the evidence of any kind of dirt on the back of him is my biggest thing. Yeah, but what about the fact that he was just walking home and this guy was following him? So the guy was following him, which chronologically in terms of how the event unfolded, following him. Okay, that means Curtis wasn't pursuing a problem. Right. Then there's paint on the back of his shirt. So that corroborates being pushed against the house. Mm So Curtis didn't initiate the physical yes. altercation. But that, what didn't corroborate it was there was no like dirt on his back from when he said he was laying on his back. So what I think probably happened is that he's pushed and his glasses fall off his face. Courtney said he was nearly blind without his glasses and this really de- disoriented him. And he went into like, I'm going to die. I can't even see. And that's when he took his knife out and started defending himself. And maybe he was in such fear or, or based on whatever military training he had, or based on whatever trigger he had. I think there's a weird, perfect storm of things that made him 
overreact Mm -hmm. where, because he obviously didn't pursue this. People saw Moody following him. Right. And it's like, where is that line between self-defense and murder where you overdid it? Well, I I think another interesting thing is going back to the very beginning of the episode when we're talking about how he kept screaming, this is a crime of passion, crime of passion, crime of passion. Crime of passion is like when you kill your wife in the heat of a moment, it's he's probably thinking in his head, this is self-defense, this is self-defense. I'm not like, he meant like second degree, you know, he's like, I, I didn't. He, he meant manslaughter, maybe, or he meant something that, that or second degree murder, like you were saying. I, I think it sounds like he was using just the wrong term. Yeah. But this it's an interesting yeah. thing. Like, I'm sure it's an interesting thing for the cops to come up with. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yes. I just wonder how you go from this is a hate crime or this is violence against the homeless when he, Moody was following him. that's the following him thing is the thing that puts the whole thing into question for me, because if this is a guy who's never been violent, um, never hurt anyone, never anything. And then he was mugged and apparently was a really brutal mugging the previous year, which caused him to start carrying a knife. So he was traumatized by this mugging as well, which apparently there was a police report for. So I think it's like, he's been mugged. It's all these all of these situations and Courtney also said, so she talked about what Daniel Moody said in his ear, in his ear. I'm going to get me some tonight. Yeah. And she suspects, and this was something that came up at trial that he took that to mean sexual assault, mm-hmm. not theft. So, and, um, Curtis had abuse as a child. He grew up in like foster care. He was adopted as like a teen. So there are a lot of things suggesting the intent isn't really there, but I think his overreaction was so extreme with the excess of stab wounds that a normal person can't get past that. Yeah, but it goes down. I mean, I keep thinking about the stand your ground laws and he definitely was being, somebody was approaching him. Somebody was attacking him. Mm-hmm. You know, if we were to believe the witness's statements and there's no reason why we shouldn't, you know, the stand, stand your ground laws would say, you have the right to stand your ground, you know, that we see, and, and there's, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of issues with those and we've seen a lot of bad things that have happened with those, but you see them, you know, in, in certain States, you know, that's usually with a gun and you usually see that with a gun. My, my question is, is that if somebody shoots somebody six times, is that potentially equal to stabbing the stopping power times? of stabbing somebody a hundred times? I don't know. Well, I think when you are in the military, there's a hand to hand combat aspects that you're trained in that we just as civilians don't understand because the fact that Courtney said that she was trained to just neutralize under any circumstances, whatever violence you're neutralizing against yourself, you're trained to overdo it because your fellow soldiers could be at risk pretty much. I think there's a lot of things we don't understand about that in conjunction with the mugging and with his childhood abuse. It's Mm -hmm. just like a perfect storm of overreaction. While preparing for the trial, Curtis's defense had him assessed by a forensic pathologist. And in her report, Dr. Melton stated that Curtis had a rough childhood, suffering neglect and physical, emotional, and possibly sexual abuse at the hands of his mother and her various boyfriends. 
It was in her opinion that Curtis's childhood experiences explain his extreme response to the threat posed by Daniel Moody. However, the judge would eventually rule that this testimony would not be admissible. So the prosecution believed that this was a ruse, but was there something to it? So Curtis was adopted, and he wasn't adopted until his teens. And he'd been in foster care for several years before that. He and his, his younger siblings, he has three younger siblings. But before he, he made it into foster care, before he was taken away from his mother, it was really not a good home life at all. With a lot of abuse, a lot of drug use, um, a lot of neglect. I remember it was either him or his sister who had told me some story about how like they were walking to go get food with like some change that they found in the couch. They were they were not being taken care of. His mom, def- his birth mother, definitely had some demons. Um, and so he ended up in a foster home of these two really wonderful people. And that's when I met him, was when he had been living with them, and I think he'd just been recently adopted. And what about what Curtis told the police about being mugged months prior? There's no denying that Curtis stabbed Daniel Moody to death brutally over and over and over again, which is horrific. But why this happened isn't clear. We have the witness that came forward and said that Daniel was trailing Curtis. And we have accounts that Daniel had actually been violent in the past. So did this killing begin with the intention of self-defense and then cross over into a horrific murder? And if so, at what point? And how is that line defined? How could Curtis's past experiences and trauma play into what happened? And does the past matter when presented with the horrific injuries Daniel received and the perceived overkill of stabbing someone 110 times? And Curtis took the stand in his own defense during the trial to plead his side of the story. When all is said and done, the jury found Curtis guilty on all counts. They rejected his self-defense claim. And one of the primary reasons for this was that jurors concluded that it was not necessary for Curtis to stab Daniel more than 110 times before he finally let go. Curtis was sent to prison 15 years to life. The Dayton man found out today how long he's going to prison for killing a homeless man. Live with what the victim's family had to say in court. It was a few weeks ago that a jury found Curtis Gray guilty of killing Daniel Moody last October. And before the judge sentenced him, Gray took the opportunity to address the judge himself. Just to reiterate what my lawyer said for me, Your Honor, which is I'm very sorry for this tragedy. This afternoon, a judge sentenced Gray to 15 years to life in prison for purposeful murder. He will also be supervised by the parole authority for the rest of his life. A cousin of Daniel Moody shared a prepared statement asking the judge to sentence Gray to the fullest penalty he could. The life that Daniel lived, he never brought on any physical harm to no one. Daniel was a very much outspoken person. He was an outgoing person. He was raised to know people he had contact with. He gave respect. He gave respect. A minister that's been working with Gray and is also a family friend told me outside of the courtroom that they are planning to appeal what she says is a wrongful conviction. I remember watching camera flashes as the jury delivered their decision. And I remember Curtis just kind of like, he was standing up for the verdict and he just kind of like bent over and kind of collapsed. 
against the table that he was standing against. Courtney was Curtis's rock through this entire ordeal. But something this heavy takes a toll. He got sentenced in November of 2014. It was probably late 2015, early 2016 that I, I stopped talking to him. I just remember, like, not even having the emotional capacity to be, like, to, like, give my friends who didn't have all of this craziness in their lives the attention that they deserve. At that point, I was like, when do I get to move on? Because I kind of felt like I was just tethered to him so closely. And I think that that was kind of like my moment, as heartbreaking as it was, think about like how it would affect him, that I just I kind of had to start pulling back from him and how much emotional energy he took from me. I do remember him telling me on a couple of occasions that he was very worried about all of us, all of his friends kind of just drifting away from him. And he's like, you know, like, you guys are going to go off and you're going to go do other things. It's like, one day you're going to get married. And he's like, I just, I don't, I feel like I'm just going to be left behind back here. Like, I think I'm just, I feel like I'm going to be lost. We asked you earlier in the episode, what is this crime? Is this a hate crime? Is this self-defense? Is this senseless violence? But maybe it's none of these things. Maybe it's a different kind of crime. We always want a black and white conclusion to things like this, to cases like this. But in the case of Daniel and Curtis, it's gray. So there's a phrase that you use kind of regularly, a cosmic shuffling of the deck. I think that they both just got dealt a really shitty hand. I think it was just a terrible culmination of things that just happened to to collide in like some sort of whirlwind of awfulness. So I've listened to every episode that you guys have done. I just kept sitting there like this, this case is kind of what like drew me into true crime. Bringing order back from chaos. And I think that that's where like after all of the chaos of this, this whole event and trial and everything that we all went through, I was just trying to find reconciliation for stuff like this happening. And so I, when I was listening to all of your episodes, I I couldn't find anything that, like, struck me as emotionally similar to this. All I know is that it it's awful for everyone. Like, just a heartbreaking conclusion to a story that, like, no one could see coming. A big thank you to Courtney for being our first degree this week. She is in our Facebook group, so go say hi to her. And a lot of our first degree connections are in our Facebook group, which is really awesome if you guys have any extra questions for them, I guess. Well, and they've connected with each other yeah. and have kind of talked to each other through a lot of this stuff. And it's really amazing to see. Yeah, it's a really cool community we have going on over there. So definitely go join our Facebook group if you haven't. If you have a story you would like to tell, you can email us at hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Again, go join our Facebook group. And uh, yeah, we're throwing our Black Friday sale on our merch. Use our code Black Friday for 40% off. That's a great deal. That's right. And stay tuned for Killing Time. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that close. Happy Blackout Day. Go get drunk. Buy a lot of stuff on your mom's credit card. Okay, welcome to Killing Time. And for this week, we decided to ask you guys to ask us some questions. We're going to be doing a Q&A, but of weird, random, obscure questions. Who wants to go first? Why don't you start, Jacqueline? Okay. Well, I'm. this one's really random, and it's from... Emma Nicole Miller, and she says, what is your favorite houseplant? And the only reason why I bring this up is because Alexis has adopted one of my houseplants and has nursed it back to life. Yeah. So Jack had a plant that was dying and had like an infectious disease on it. It was a bit, it's a banana leaf plant and it had, it looked like mold. Wait, is it that one? It's that one. Oh, it's that one right there. Yeah. Okay. It's behind Alexis. By the way, Alexis is flanked by two plants right now. Just yeah, FYI. I flanked. Yes. So I'm one at, one at, one at. I thought flanks were like part of your body. Well, a cat, like animals have a flank. Oh, okay. Just yeah, part of an animal. But yeah, Alexis adopted it and has nursed it back to life. And she put little braces on. So some of the leaves were bent. And I literally made splints out of little plastic knives and nursed this plant back to health. And now it's it's not exactly thriving, but it does have a new leaf. It has one new leaf. It's not thriving, but it's not dying. dying. It's still yeah. alive. You were like, I'm going to throw it away. And well, I- you know what? I can't. It had weird little white moldy things on it. I figured out what it was. It wasn't mold, but it still freaked me out. I, washed, it in my house. Um, I washed the leaves with dish soap and it went away. Oh, well, there you it's go. It's not thriving, but it's not dying. That's, That's how I feel. That basically is <laughs> oh the God. human condition. I'm not thriving, but I'm not dying. Okay. Who's going next? Lex, do you have a question? I have, by the way, I haven't pulled any, so. You, have, you haven't even looked at them? No. Billy, what were we doing for the past 15 minutes? I was working on, on, on texting pain. Oh, my God. You're useless. Alexis, pull a question. You are useless. So I have a couple of interesting ones. Oh, okay. So here's a good one. Joe and Dash Orr. <laughs> Is that his name on Facebook? Joe and Dash Orr. Joe and Orr. Yeah, I think this is a trick. This is probably like a teacher or something who doesn't want their real name. Yeah. Or it's a couple. Good for you guys. Um, No couple Facebooks, please. Do you and Jack have any crazy stories from when you lived together? Oh, boy, do we. And we have many. So I'll preface this with the fact that we lived in a house called The Pink House in Hollywood when we were 20, 21 years old. I turned 21 at that house. Yeah. And it was a disgusting, yeah. dirty frat house. Not our a clean- sorority. It was like a frat our house. Our cleaning lady came over and cried. There was a rat that was living in her house That's for a while. So gross. The door never locked. It was, that place was a shithole, but it, it was wasn't. so fun. It wasn't until we got there. It was nice. We made it a shithole. Dude, we had like people living on our couches there was a rotating, there's 10 rotating people in and out of yeah, our house every day. Yeah, it was day. insane. It, it was, was insane. so fun. But one of the memories that sticks out to me, I mean, they all, my ex-boyfriend was living with us too. And he, I think, had an alcohol problem mm-hmm. when he was living there. Mm-hmm. And um, well, we all did. 
but he really yeah, did. Yeah, he's older, so I don't he, know. He, his was he worse. really did because yeah. of listen to this story. So we had a party one night, and I don't remember what it was for, but we had a keg, and we were doing keg stands. Mm-hmm. And it was like 3 a.m. or something, and I think everyone was going to bed. I think maybe me and Jack were probably in Anna or something. We're probably the last ones up. And we had these stairs with these bars, and we looked through, and my ex-boyfriend and this other guy were like drinking and there was no more keg. There was a cup on the ground of filled, wine. With, filled with wine. And the guy was holding him upside down and he was drinking it through a straw. He was doing a keg stand from a single cup of wine, wine with, a, with straw. a straw. And then I remember the guy dropped, dropped him and he fell on his head and the, it was like slow-mo. They were just like laughing and it was the most drunken, sad thing I've ever seen. And I'm like, I'm going to go to bed and maybe this relationship should be over. Also, <laughs> another detail from that day it was not late at night it was like a sunday night so it was after a whole weekend Weekend of of raging and everybody else like it's a sunday everybody's getting sunday scaries like you should be kind of winding down i had school the next day and it was like 8 p.m on a sunday night and they're doing keg stands from a wine glass (laughs) (laughs) and then just smashing their heads we also had a pink christmas tree that had a real banana on it yeah we had a kiddie pool that we drank bottles of andre in we would sit in there all summer there, I have a story from that house and one of our other roommates was dating this guy and he brought another, his friend over that had black fingerless gloves. I remember he was kind of emo and that whole night we we're spent throwing bananas on that tree. I don't know why. And then we we're all drinking. And then that night he was like in my bed, we we're making out, nothing really happened. And then all of a sudden he's, he's like not stood up sat up in bed and then threw up all over my comforter all over the comforter were the fingerless gloves okay i think so all right that's all that matters that is all that that matters matters. what's your serial killer trait you go first philly (laughs) what's my serial killer trait yeah oh who's that from tiffany verdon verdon my serial killer trait is i would say probably my are we doing it from persistence like the- <laughs> all right so uh yeah my serial killer trait probably is my drive i just I think don't your stop serial killer trait is your vibe my vibe mm-hmm. do i have a serial killer vibe mm-hmm. all right you've got a creepy vibe going on thanks <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome what's what's my serial killer tra- trait? trait i don't think i do i have one i'm too lazy mm. yeah but is that a is that, is a, that cover? a ruse? Yeah, is that a ruse? Hmm. I don't really know what yours is. You're not creepy. <laughs> you know what she does, <laughs> <Thank> though? <you. laughs> Jack lives near the water in a place that looks very much like Dexter's place. I do live watch, in a picturesque yeah. little apartment. Yeah. You are? No, you're really... You're not neurotic personality-wise, but you kind of are about a lot of things. I'm particular. But, yeah, but in a way that, like, if it's not matching your what you your particular thing you get really agitated yes you hate like my bedtime routine like when you can't get home exactly when Ooh. you want i've never seen you <laughs> Ooh. where you're like i, I need to leave oh, and uber I, wasn't working like you you have this like phase where it's like if you can't have like if you it's know not what? going no. according to plan but it's only getting home yeah it's when i feel like i'm stuck and i'm like i can't mm-hmm. get home 
me at a festival, me at Coachella, not being able to get home. I've never been more of a bitch in my entire life. That's where my bitchies, but that's not a serial yeah. killer. Yeah. But maybe I'd get so worked up, I'd no, kill somebody. No, it's a serial killer no, in the you're fact meticulous. that- meticulous. Serial killers are meticulous. Yeah, but okay. it's also a serial killer in the fact that because you know that about you, and yet all your stuff that you ever have to do is on this side of town, but you've moved all the way on that side mm. of town. So there's so much of a more Where none of her friends live. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> But, because you're Dexter. You know what's there? The ocean. Yeah. Yes. And it's worth it. The ocean's my friend. <laughs> right. Okay. What's your serial killer trait? You already know this answer. Um, so I uh the triage of sociopathy is generally fire, animal oh, torture, torture, yeah, and bedwetting. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, <laughs> I was a bedwetter forever, pretty much, because I was a bedwetter to like 12 mm-hmm. like late and then i stopped yay me for through high school <laughs> in middle school and then when jack and i lived together and we started partying it started happening again when i would get really drunk when you get like blackout yeah and uh we we I toy with sharing this story because it is so insane. But um, the same boyfriend who was doing the wine keg stands, he was obviously a really heavy drinker. And for a while, it was everyone in the house knew that I would do this and I would like pee the bed, whatever. Um, And he didn't know because he thought he was wetting the bed because I would push him into it. (laughs) into my spot (laughs) you would roll him into the wet side of the bed and he was so drunk that like you guys we're 21 like we're in college we're living in hollywood we we were just drinking a lot and it's i'm not proud of it we just were yeah and he would wake up and be like i pissed myself i had so much fun and he kind of rolled with it like it was funny but after a while but all of us knew it wasn't him all of us knew it was you i know everybody in the the house house it was like some sick joke that she and she'd roll him into the piss stained (laughs) bed (laughs) and he'd wake up he'd be like i peed myself again and we're like totally (laughs) it was all really funny back then it's still funny or alexis would also like if she was feeling very sly if i was feeling nice okay so alexis wet the bed like it's a psychological disorder (laughs) you're asleep you can't shame people for it they were unconscious i wasn't shaming you i was literally just saying a different a different word for it anyways alexis wet the bed and then if she was feeling like she had the energy in her, she would roll him over and then take off all the sheets, wash them, roll them back over and put the sheets on like nothing happened. So half the time you blamed it on him and then half the time you he covered it up. Yeah. And then he caught me when I uh, peed the couch and he tried to carry me upstairs. Yeah. And he's like, the jig is fucking up. <laughs> and then he went to the bed water. He talked to my roommates and they were all like, Yeah. He's like, I know. And then, but he wouldn't tell me. And I was like, he knows. And it was this thing that went on for like three days until he's like, I know. And it's okay. I think it's funny and cute. Thank you. (laughs) You know, you're in love when you think that's cute. Next question. A lot of good that love did me. Yeah. But I haven't went to bed in about 13 years. You've really moved on. Yeah. Growing up. Okay. Well, we've run out of time, but this Q&A will go on for a long time i feel like because we have a lot of fucking questions so um until then we've killed some time and that's showbiz baby that's showbiz baby that is showbiz 
baby. I wish you could see Billy's like twirling finger twirling in the air. Twirling finger like, in the air. That's right. Pointing That's Alexis. That's baby. Sure Woo! is. Bye, everyone.